Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Lindy Walker's journalist investigator, Nichelle Clark, juggles stud muffin boyfriends while she takes on mafia hotties, corrupt politicians, old flames, and in every book, I promise, murder. Hi there. I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Lindy talks about her new crime thriller, Hidden Victims, as well as a new Texas Ranger series featuring a new heroine, Faith McClellan, all on the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. We've got three ebook copies of Hidden Victims to give away to three lucky readers. Enter the draw on thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. Before we get to Lindy, though, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found also on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you can find links to Lindy's books, website, and all the other things we've been talking about today. Check us out there, enter the draw there, and leave your comments for us there. We love to connect with our listeners. But now, here's Lindy. Hello there, Lindy, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Look, I always like to start with this question. It might be a little predictable, but readers always like to know the answer to it. How did you get started in your writing? Was there a once upon a time moment when you just had that light bulb experience, I have to do this, or was it something a lot more gradual and integrated? Actually, I did sort of have a light bulb moment. It's kind of a funny story. My son, my second child, was probably a year old and I was loading my dishwasher. And all of a sudden, there was this reporter in my head. She was she was locked in a car trunk down in Shaco Bottom because she had gotten herself in trouble chasing a story and she couldn't really figure out how she was going to get out of it. And I looked at the silverware caddy in the dishwasher and said, I don't know anything about writing fiction. But I didn't have anything else to do while the baby was taking his naps and she wouldn't go away. So I got my computer and I started writing the story. And that was 11 years ago this summer. And I never had any idea at that time where all of this was going to take me or how much fun I was going to have with Michelle. But that is where she came from. In that scene where she's locked in the car trunk in Chaco Bottom, it made it through all of the edits and it is still smack in the middle of the first book. How amazing. And for those who don't know that your heroine being a journalist wasn't that surprising because you yourself were a journalist at that time, were you not? I had been. I I was a newspaper reporter before I was a mom. So when I found out that I was pregnant with my oldest daughter, I decided that maybe the 80-hour weeks and unpredictable hours of covering police and the courthouse was not really a thing that I wanted to keep doing because I was never going to get to see my baby. So I left the newsroom. I was a stay-at-home mom for about five years. And really, after we moved to Virginia, I thought, you know, I used to, I mean, I would tell other moms in our play group, I used to be a writer, but I didn't think it was something that I was ever really going to do again until that day when Nichelle showed up in my head when I was loading the dishwasher. And now here I am. That's wonderful. And probably it isn't a surprise that you chose crime thrillers as your genre, but 
they were first marketed, I think, under the tagline of headlines in high heels. And there's a whole set of covers with very high stiletto heels. That was your first iteration, I think. Yeah, there was a different publisher than the one that Uh I have now. Yeah, okay. So the first book is called Front Page Fatality. And it must have been a real thrill because it won an Agatha Award for the best first mystery novel. Well, I actually didn't win. I was a finalist that year, though, for the Agathas. Oh, and being okay. on the short list is a, is a big honor. And that was a, a really wonderful experience and completely horribly unexpected. The poor woman who, who had to call me from the Malice Domestic Board to tell me that the book was an Agatha finalist, I, I must have told her that she was lying about five times on the phone after she said that. Um, she was very, my family and I were actually at Disney world when she got me on the phone and we were in a restaurant and it was very loud and I couldn't hear her. So by the time I got outside where I could hear what she was saying, she was practically screaming. I'm calling to congratulate you on your nomination for an Agatha award. And I was like, what? You are not. Are you kidding? So... (laughs) It was a really fun moment. And that was a a grand, fun experience that I made a lot of friends from other writers who were nominated with me that year. We did a lot of events and stuff together that spring. And we're still friends to this day. It It was great fun. That's wonderful. Now, a reviewer described that first book as a murder mystery, well, the series actually, a murder mystery series taught with gripping, authentic plots that only a former crime reporter could write. So um, we've talked about your newspaper career, but you you obviously were doing crime reporting as well. I did, yeah. For for a large part of my journalism career, I covered uh, mostly the police department and the courthouse. There are, uh, of course, a lot of stories that that come out of those two places. But it's you know, I think just knowing the the behind the scenes part of how the cases progress and what happens from the initial police report and the arrest to the here in the United States and in Texas particularly because that's where I worked when I was a journalist. The district attorney's office will have an investigator that completes an investigation after the police investigation has been completed and the reports have been filed. There are all kinds of steps that happened between that initial arrest and the trial, which can be anywhere from 12 to 24 months later. So kind of knowing the background of all that and how the deadlines in the newsroom work, hopefully gives the stories a little bit of a behind the scenes peek for people who aren't familiar with that world. And I think, I hope that that's fun for readers as well. Sure. Now there, I think there are now eight full length Nichelle books and two novellas. That's true. And yes. the most recent one is called Hidden Victims, isn't it? Yes. They can uh, be read in any order? They can. There there are some overarching storylines that go between the books. You know, Nichelle has her personal life, her love life. There are things that kind of stretch between the books there, but there are no spoilers for any of the mysteries in any of the other books. So if you happen to pick up the series on the third one, it's not going to ruin the first two mysteries for you because it doesn't say who did it. You can still go back and read the others. And Nichelle is a heroine. I love this description that I read. She juggles stud muffin boyfriends and takes on mafia hotties, corrupt politicians, old flames and murder. That's, that's just in buried lead book two. So how has she evolved over the series? <laughs> you mentioned her romantic life. Has she evolved in other ways? 
She has. Yeah. I always kind of wanted Michelle to grow as a character over the course of the series. That was one of the goals that I had. Once I figured out that there was going to be more than one book, then I, while I read and love and appreciate a lot of mystery series where the characters don't ever change, like Nancy Drew, for instance, I really wanted her to, to learn things and grow as a person. So she had all of these sort of personal issues and challenges with commitment and her family history. And a lot of that stuff gets resolved over the course of these eight books where she kind of grows into herself and becomes more confident in herself and her abilities, figures out more of who she is. And I, I think that helps her in her relationships, her personal relationships with other people. Yes, and it's interesting because in her victims, she's changed jobs and she's in a new job and she comes under that pressure that many reporters would be familiar with today where the bosses are looking to her to get the clickbaity stories, the stories that are going to make people pull out their money at the supermarket checkout. And that's a very relevant uh reflection of what journalism is like today, isn't it? It might not have been quite so much like that when you began. It was not, no. And those are things that I actually have had to watch and study trends in the marketplace. I mean, when I wrote the rough draft of Front Page, I wrote it as the newsroom was when I left five years earlier. There was no social media. There was no Twitter. There was no, you know, the receptionists were still leaving messages on desks on little pink slips of paper because that's what we had. And it was the newsroom that I knew. And then after the book sold, I had to go back and update everything to include, you know, cell phones and her searching through social media profiles for people that she was investigating and doing stories on all kinds of stuff that I didn't ever have to actually do as a reporter. And with this, you know, I mean, of course, everybody always wants the, the big headline grabbing story, but the newspaper didn't used to be under so much financial pressure for reporters to bring things like that in. Where today, they, they really, they need the story because they need the ad revenue that having the story and being the talk of the town is going to bring in. Yeah. And some of those stories are probably not really justifiable or or justified the position they get. They're just almost, what's the word for it? They're almost gossip. <laughs> I, there, yes, there's some, there, definitely probably some publications out there that will use things that may not be strictly of the highest journalistic integrity to draw clicks. And that's actually something that I've always really loved about Nichelle is she sort of had my old school ethical code, I guess. My professors, when I was in college, they were all old school journalists who worked at the Dallas Times Herald back in the 60s and covered the Kennedy assassination and did all these really great, wonderful things when they were reporters. And one of the things that they really managed to drum into our heads when I was in school was that you don't have anything if you don't have a reputation. It doesn't matter what kind of story you got if it was at the expense of now these people won't talk to you anymore. So that's something that Nichelle takes very seriously in the books that she, you know, she's not going to run something until she really knows that what she has is the truth. Now, you've also launched a second series around a Texas ranger called Faith McClellan. Book two of that series was also published this year. So, so far this year, you've had one book in each of your series out. What made you decide that you wanted to do this second series? 
Well, it was a combination of things. I, I wanted to write about something different. I had a contract that was discontinued on the Nichelle series from one publisher, and it can be very difficult in the publishing world to find a different publisher that wants to pick up the series when it's already established. So my agent said the best road we had to that was for me to write something totally different. And I got an idea for a book about a sort of overachiever superstar teenage girl who is from a very affluent family and winds up dead. And this one police officer who didn't see the case as a a privileged young woman who had committed suicide and wanted to investigate it further. And I started writing that. And while I was working on the first book in the Faith McClellan series, there actually uh, did come to be another publisher who was interested in picking up the Nichelle series and continuing it. So then all of a sudden, instead of writing one series, I had two because I had finished or was almost finished with the rough draft of Fear No Truth at the time. It's been an interesting challenge with a household to run and three children to raise and take care of and um, a busy husband who travels often to make sure that I stick with these deadlines and get two books out a year instead of one. But so far, it's going okay. It's fantastic. Now you've moved your settings because most a lot of Nichelle is real high life high life condo sort of territory to Texas Hill Country. That must be a quite a, a change for a start. It is, but it's it, face stories are fun for me to write. I live in Richmond now, so it's been an, it, the Nichelle series has sort of been a fun way for me to explore and learn about our adopted hometown here because I didn't grow up here. So a lot of the history stuff that turns up in the books is there because I found it interesting because it was something I learned while I was doing research. But I did grow up in North Central Texas and um, the Hill Country is, is not a long drive from there. And it's one of the most beautiful parts of the state and has always been one of my favorite places to visit. So Faith was, I, I started off the rough draft of that book with her being a police detective and she was determined that she was a Texas Ranger and that became a very... Um, very interesting dynamic for me to explore with her character all on its own. Um, and then being able to set that book in the Hill Country was just kind of a bonus because it sort of feels like writing about home. For those who maybe like in New Zealand and Australia who aren't so familiar with what a Texas Ranger is even is, could you just perhaps give a little bit of um, explanation of the distinction between a detective and a Texas Ranger? Absolutely. So the Texas Rangers are a very unique criminal investigation organization. They sort of serve as the criminal investigations arm of the Texas Department of Public Safety. So their jurisdiction is the entire state, and there's about 256,000 square miles in Texas. <laughs> it is very big. They also cover a very wide range of types of cases, everything from bank fraud to running the state's cold case homicide unit. So there's a lot of story material there. But the Rangers also have sort of a a mystique and a legendary storied history in Texas. They were sort of the original, you know, Border Patrol cowboys, I guess, way, way back 150, 200 years ago. And there are all kinds of stories of legendary investigators and, you know, gunfights and their uniform included boots and cowboy hats for a long time and still mostly does to this day. The badge is still a silver star 
there are a lot of things that haven't changed. But it was very interesting to me to write a woman who was a Texas Ranger in the 21st century because the Rangers actually kind of were the, the very last American good old boys club in law enforcement where our Federal Bureau of Investigation began to admit women agents in the mid-1930s, the Texas Rangers did not have a female field officer until 1993 when the governor made it a, a law that they had to admit qualified women as field officers. And even to this day, there have been fewer than 20. Wow. So it sort of became a motivating thing for her character. That was something that I, I had to go back and figure out, like, why would someone do this? What would motivate her to push through all of this to get to this specific job when she's such a good cop and she could have been an FBI agent or an ATF agent or, you know, worked anywhere at any police department in the homicide division. Yeah, that's really interesting. That that book that's out this year was called Leave No Stone, I think, wasn't it? And it was a serial killer story. How is Faith different from Nichelle in terms of personality and character? Faith is a lot quieter. She's a lot tougher and more no-nonsense than Nichelle. She, we sort of meet her in the first book, having had a much rougher life than Nichelle did in a lot of ways. She knows a, a sort of a different kind of loss than Nichelle ever has. And it has had a big role in shaping who she is and why she's dedicated her life to this work when it wasn't at all what her family wanted her to do. So she's, she has different ways to grow and develop, I think, over, over the course of her series. And I have very much enjoyed getting to know her better writing these books. She is, she is a neat character. I'm fortunate to get to write about fictional people that I would really like to go have a glass of wine with if they were real. That's your prerogative as an author, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> You've had a lot of compliments in your reviews for your twisty plots and your surprise endings. And I wonder, how do you tackle these books in terms of structure? Do you have a lot of sleepless nights working out the surprise endings or do you start with a surprise ending and work backwards? It kind of depends on the book. There have been a couple where I started with the end and worked backwards to figure out how Nichelle was going to get to that particular answer. But most of the time these days, I start with kind of a vague idea. I'm, I'm terrible about not being able to outline. I really wish I could. But every time I've ever tried, I veer so far off of it while I'm writing the story that it ends up being useless to me. So I kind of start with a vague idea of what I want the story to be about and a body that's going to be discovered somewhere and then just see where it goes. And I think it's funny because sometimes when I do events and I meet readers, I, I almost feel like it comes across the wrong way if someone compliments a twist in a, in a particular book. I've had people come up and say, oh, and then I loved it when this happens. And instead of saying, thank you, like a normal person, I say, I know, right? Because I didn't see it coming either. It just all of a sudden was there. I was sitting at my computer and typing and I went, oh, that's who that guy is. Okay. So <laughs> they just sort of come to me while I'm working for the most part. But every once in a while, my children have stories to tell about us being in the middle of doing something as a family and me just stopping and running for my computer because... I got an idea or I figured out something about how something was going to work out. And you want to make sure you get it done before you forget it again. Yes, ma'am. That's absolutely <laughs> right. 
It's a real seat of end, edge of your seat moment when those things happen, isn't it? It it really is, and it's always it always comes as a relief to me. I think I start every book kind of being afraid of what's going to happen with it and where it's going to go, and what if this is the one that I can't figure out? And thankfully, I've not come across that one just yet. But it's you know those moments that I have when I when I do figure it out, and I go, that's why this is all happening this way because it's this thing. Then it's a it's a huge relief because I'm like, okay, now the story is going to work out. I I know what's happening here. Oh, that's fantastic. Look, I wondered if you've ever yourself been caught in some of the extreme circumstances that your heroines face, you know, threats from either the villains or from readers who don't like what you're reading, well, in Nichelle's case, what she's publishing in the paper. And how did you handle it if you did face that kind of um, circumstance? Not, Not nearly as dangerous as anything that Michelle has ever gotten herself into. I did have one story that I wrote as a very, very young reporter where the police chief in the city where I worked threatened to arrest me because he was (laughs) upset with not even, I mean, he didn't, he didn't particularly care for the way that I was covering some things that were going on in the police department. And I sort of had a running joke with his public information officer at the time, the PIO was really great and we got along really well, but I would call and ask for a comment on whatever I was writing about. And he would always laugh and say, the chief ain't going to talk to you. He has no comment. He doesn't like you. And I would say, well, that's okay. Cause they pay me to call and ask. So, um, but he sort of did something he shouldn't have at a hearing one day because he thought that all the members of the media had, had left the building it sounds ridiculous now, the age that I am now, but at the time I was very young and it was my very first professional reporting job. I was still a college student and I had a test that day that the professor would not let me out of because I was supposed to be covering a hearing. So I had to go to campus and take a test. So when I left, I left my tape recorder with one of the attorney's assistants and asked her to just turn the tape over when it ran out so that I would have my own recording of the rest of the proceedings from the hearing that afternoon. And the reporter from the local television station also left because she had something else that she had to do back at her office. So they resumed the hearing and he didn't think that there were any journalists in the room. And he said some things he would not have said, I think probably if we had still been there and he got very upset when I called the next day asking for a comment on his behavior because I had a recording of the things that he had said. So he called me to his office and told me he would sit for an interview and then proceeded to threaten to arrest me for violating a section of the penal code that actually pertains to illegal wire, illegally wiretapping a telephone conversation. My God. Um, <laughs> and he said, I can, I can arrest you for violating this particular section of the Texas Penal Code, and that tape can disappear out of my evidence room. And I went, I don't know what that section of the Penal Code says, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't say I can't have a tape recorder in a public meeting. And if that's all you wanted, I think we're done here. And, you know, all of 19 years old and probably still relatively naive, I got up and walked out of the office. I think I probably must have been pale as a ghost because the public information officer did sit up in his chair and look at me and say, are you okay? 
<laughs> but it was it was a, an interesting learning experience for me when they think no one's watching. I did go back to my office and write a story and include all of the things that happened during that interview in it. I got some great comments from some of the attorneys that had been involved in the hearing the day before. I also got a lot of phone calls from rank and file police officers when that story ran who just called me and said, I've never met you and don't know anything about you, but I wanted to apologize because you shouldn't have behaved that way. So. That's remarkably um, courageous for a 19 year old who's just starting out. I can see why you managed to become an award-winning crime reporter. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I would handle myself that same way if that same situation happened today. I think I was just young and naive enough to not really understand how much trouble I might be in. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. So how many years did you have? And was it at the Dallas Morning News or where were you working? How long did you have in journalism? I worked at different papers in North Central Texas for eight years, I guess, probably. And I worked all over the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I worked at the Alternative Weekly paper in Fort Worth for a while. I worked at, wrote some some stories freelance for some local magazines and even for an environmental journal for a little while. And then I went to work for Star Group in Southwest Fort Worth and worked there actually as a managing editor, running a paper in a small town outside of Fort Worth in Southwest Tarrant County. What lessons did you learn in that career that have transferred over to your current fiction writing? You have to stick with your deadlines. And just because your muse isn't talking to you today is no excuse to not get your work done. You know, I, I didn't always feel like going back to the newsroom at the end of the day and writing a story, but I had a deadline. And so I had to anyway. And I think that has served me well with writing fiction professionally with deadlines and publication schedules to worry about because even if I don't feel like doing it, I have to sit down and write something because I have a deadline and it has to be done. And I guess that's probably the same sort of advice you'd give to young writers starting out today who asked you what the secret is. Absolutely. You can always fix it. It doesn't matter how crummy your first draft is. If you have something on the page, then you have something that you can go revise. I kind of think of a rough draft as a book of a book as sort of like dumping clay on a potter's wheel. Like it's not pretty, but there's something there and you can shape it into something that's really beautiful when you go back to revise it. So my first advice is always, even if you don't feel like it, even if you don't know what's going to happen next, you are allowed to write something that is terrible because eventually the story will get moving again and you will figure things out. And as long as you have something, then you can always fix it later. That's fantastic. So how many revisions would you normally do? I usually go through four rounds on a book because my writing process is so messy. I have to, you know, I make margin notes as I'm writing the rough draft because things will change as I figure out things when I get later into the story, then that changes something that had to happen in the beginning. And so I'll make myself a note in the margin to, you know, go back and change this, or I need to add a scene that does A and B so that C that I have here makes sense. So the first round of revisions is always that sort of stuff, the big cleaning up and making all the story threads come together. And then I go through and I read for continuity and to make sure that the characters are all behaving the way that I I think they should be behaving according to the way they've behaved in other books. You know, then I usually do a read for more 
language type things, sentence length, making sure that I'm not being monotone. That one, normally I'll, I walk around the house with, with a file on my iPad or sometimes even in printed pages and read it out loud because I hear it better that way. And then the last one is always, you know, looking for the words that I have a tendency to repeat. I have a list in my computer of things that I know I have a tendency to say too much in every manuscript. So I go back and look for those and delete them when I find that they've been overused. That's fantastic. That's a remarkable structured, disciplined approach. It really is. It's it's worked for me so far 10 times. So hopefully it's going to continue to. Look, Lindy, this is the joys of binge reading and we're coming to the end of our time together. So turning to Lindy as, as a reader, do you like to binge read? And if so, what do you like to read for your entertainment, not so much for the research you might have to do? And would you have some current favorites that you could recommend to people? We like to say that this podcast, you can find something great for your next read. Absolutely. I have so many favorite books. We probably don't have time for me to list them all. In terms of binge reading, if people are looking for a good series, one of, I like to laugh when I read. Reading is an escape for me. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't like the dark books too, but if I'm going to read a whole lot of books about one character, I would usually like them to be a little more lighthearted. And my friend Donna Andrews, her Meg Langslow mystery series is just phenomenal. It is hilarious. The mysteries are always so well-drawn. The characters are lovely. Her setting is wonderful. She kind of hops around and and does different things with travel now because I think she's up to like 25 books in that series. So if you want to binge read something and you've never read Donna Andrews' Meg Langslow books, you should definitely check them out because they are worth it. That sounds great. And then current favorite like individual reads this year, I have read some really fantastic books. Jennifer Hillier's new uh, psychological thriller, it's called Little Secrets, was phenomenal. She has outdone herself and I don't think I thought that that was possible after her last book. Um, Coming up this summer, but not yet out, I think it releases next month, uh, Sean Cosby, I think actually he writes as S.A. Cosby by his initials. He has a new thriller coming out called Blacktop Wasteland. That is, I got an early copy of it this winter and it is just an exceptional book. It it is very dark. It is not funny, (laughs) except in in a very dark way. There's some dark humor in there, Um, but it's sort of this adventure in rural noir that it is just incredible. The characters really stuck with me for a long time after I turned the last page and closed that one. And I'm excited to see how the book does when it comes out next month because I think this is going to be his big breakout novel. Fantastic. So is that a Western noir? It, yes. Sorry. It is it, it is a very, very dark book about a man who was a getaway driver Um largely known as the best one on the East Coast for a long time and then kind of tried to get out of the criminal life and settle down and have a family. And he has some extenuating, really extraordinary personal circumstances pop up that sort of force him into the, you know, the one last big score. And you can imagine that things go wrong and mayhem ensues. But the character studies in this book are just incredible. He did a phenomenal job. Sounds like something Netflix would love too. I really hope so. I think that I saw a couple of weeks ago in Variety that maybe they had sold the film rights. I might be wrong about that, 
but I think they have. And I, because that was, as I was reading, I kept thinking this would make an incredible movie. Like the, the imagery here would just be so fantastic on film. Mm, mm. Look, circling around, looking back down the time tunnel, because we are coming to the end of our time together now. Is there anything that you'd change about the way that you've done it? And if so, what would that be? I wouldn't, you know, I, I've had several people ask me that question in the last few years and I really feel like I've ended up where I'm supposed to be. I'm in a good place and every single decision that I ever made about publishing um, brought me here in one way or another. I've made some wonderful friends and met some really fantastic people and met some really wonderful readers along the way. And I don't think a quick or a short road to the publishing big time would have been nearly as much fun or as educational or brought so many wonderful people into my life. So I'm very happy with the way things have gone. I think these days there's a kind of general observation out there that no writer can anyway live on just one big book. You have to have a solid backlist, don't you? It definitely helps. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Look, what is next for Lindy, the writer? What have you got on your desk for the rest of 2020 and the first half of 2021? Now we're halfway through the year. So I actually just signed a contract extension for five more books, four more books. I don't even remember how many were on there. I will have this third Faith McClellan book that I'm uh, working on finishing now will be out either in the winter or the early spring of 2021. I know it's currently slated to release in March of 2021, but there's been talk at the publisher of, of maybe trying to push the date up if we can make that work. And then once I finish this one and turn it in, I'm going to write the fourth book in the Faith McClellan series that will probably... They, they haven't given me a release date for that one yet, but I would imagine late 2021 or early 2022. And then when I finish that one, I actually have a, an idea for a new series that I'm going to start, which I'm very excited about the idea of. So hopefully that's going to be great fun to write and get started and get to know some new characters. That's wonderful. So Nichelle's taking a bit of a rest? She is. She... I didn't... I didn't start writing Hidden Victims with the intention of having that happen. But by the time I got to the end of the book, I was like, oh, well, this is all okay. And, you know, there there are a lot of lingering questions from a lot of the earlier books that answered themselves in that one while I was writing it. And I'm not done with Michelle. I think she still has more stories to tell. But for right now my agent and my editor, everybody kind of agreed that she's in a good place and we can just let her rest there and be happy for a little while before she goes getting herself in trouble again. Yeah, that's great. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers? You've mentioned your readers several times, so I'm sure you do. Where can they find you online? I do, yeah. I love I love hearing from readers. I try very hard to respond to everything that I get. Sometimes I'm not great about it, so I will beg your pardon if, if anyone has messaged, messaged me and not gotten a personal reply back. It probably means that either my personal life was crazy at the moment or I was on a deadline and trying to spend all the time that I spend in front of the computer writing and getting the next story to y'all faster. But I read and very much appreciate every message 
that I get from folks. I've, I've gotten just some incredible stories over the years that really, I, I wonder sometimes if readers understand how much it means to writers when they take the time to send a note and talk about what a particular book or a particular series has meant to them. I mean, I've sat in front of my computer and just bawled my eyes out reading messages from people who say, you know, these Nichelle books got me through chemo because that's what I read when I went to my cancer treatments. Or it, I it just, it's just incredible to me that stories can have impact that help people to see past and get through really dark times. And I feel very fortunate to be able to be part of that in some way. That's wonderful. And just to mention that we'll have links to all your books and all the other things we've discussed in the show notes for this episode, which will be on the website. So they'll always be there in in perpetuity. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Great, Lindy. Well, look, thank you for your time today. You're going to be able to now go and get your dinner or relax with an evening drink while my day is just starting. But wonderful to have had a chance to talk. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time and I hope you have a wonderful day there. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.